Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The Gospel of our Lord. God, we ask for mercy and grace this morning. Uh, The mercy of understanding uh, of inspiration. Lord, may a light go on this morning in our, in our soul that would set us ablaze for the week to come and give us a sense of fire in our belly um, to step into how you are at work in this world, to join with you. We pray that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And those of you who would like to say, say, amen. So during the season of Epiphany, I'm going to be bringing a sense of definition to our community, laying out week by week our sense of why, our sense of what, and our sense of how as a church. And last week, I sort of put it out there that our church's why is life. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go onto the podcast and take a listen um, because it's sort of the white hot burning center of our church community, that we are here to live life and to live it abundantly. But today, we focus on the what. And that represents our sense of mission. What are we here to do? And though last week I said our why is life, this morning I've titled the sermon, The What is Love. And at the end of the summer, our elders sort of took, uh, and staff took a retreat uh, to reflect on our story as a church, to reflect on the language that we use to, to talk about our church and to tell our best stories as a community. And after lots of conversation and whiteboarding and uh, storytelling and debate, we we landed on uh, a a mission statement. Um, And it's not a a huge departure from where we've been, but it was important for us to put language to our sense of purpose, to our sense of mission. And this is what we said. Our mission is to help New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. Our mission is to help New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. 
So our sense of mission is almost immediately haunted, haunted by a question, a question of whether this love is really possible. It's haunted by that sort of Freudian question of whether human desire is necessarily trapped in a selfish fantasy or whether human beings can enter into this mode of relating that Jesus called love. And so this is a sermon about love. But before your eyes sort of um, roll back in your head in fear that the sermon will be so saccharine you'll need an insulin shot afterwards, let me assure you that the love we talk of, the love that we speak of this morning, the love that we see in Jesus is no kumbaya circle. The very love we ponder this morning is a love that carried our hero into great suffering and even death. The love we ponder this morning is a profound mystery that cuts against the grain of most of our human instincts. And so this morning, I want to share why we're rooted in love and how. We're rooted in the love, yes, but the love of Christ. And that's how our mission statement begins. We all have ideas about love, right? I mean, when, when I ask you the question, what is love? You probably have a sense of how you would describe it or stories that you would tell of how you've experienced it. We have senses of what it is and what it isn't. But make no mistake, some vision of love is pulling you forward. Some vision of what love is and how it should be practiced is guiding your every step, evaluating your every move. And the question that we all, I think, face is, what is this love that we imagine together? What is our vision for this love, and who is it according to? Our church is rooted in the love of Christ, but we're often shaped by different versions of love, different stories about love. It could be, you know, love according to the latest Hallmark film, or love according to Pixar. It could be love according to romanticism or stoicism. Love as a consumer or love as a communist. Love, the love of Tinder or the love of Bumble. The love of the sexual revolution or the love of Me Too. Love according to the Beatles or the Bee Gees, Freud or Young. I mean, we could go on and on with these lists. But when it comes to love, what's your North Star? And what we want to say as a community is that our North Star when it comes to love is the life and the teaching of Jesus, the Christ. As a community, we root our entire understanding of love in this story, in this life, in this person. Our mission isn't simply love. It's the love of Christ. Now, at the very beginning, I want to say this is a strange love. Yeah, one of the problems I see as I look at the landscape of the church in the U.S. anyways, that's where I'm probably best fitted to speak, I see almost a coziness with Jesus that is, uh, is troubling and it leads to lots of problems. There's a sense of like familiarity, like I know Jesus, I know what that love is about, and we kind of imagine ourselves on Jesus' side in most equations, working with him, supporting, uh, advancing a cause. And there's, there's very little meaningful introspection. There's very little meaningful space or expectation that we may not fully understand. We may not grasp what this love is and what it requires. 
And so before we jump into what love is, I want to present its strangeness and the idea that it, it certainly is that. Rowan Williams suggests uh, that it's essential for us to recover a sense of Christ's presence in the church as hidden, as strange, and as unsettling. This isn't a love that just, you know, covers your fears and covers your sins. This is a love that also disrupts. It leaves us wondering what is up and what is down at times. This morning I share with you that our very mission urges us to assume a strangeness here. There's a comment by a drunken priest in Graham Greene's book, The Power and the Glory, and I think it captures the strangeness very well. This drunken priest is ranting in a bar, and this is what he says. Oh, the priest said, that's another thing altogether. God is love. We wouldn't recognize that love. It might even look like hate. It would be enough to scare us, God's love. It set fire to a bush in the desert, didn't it? It smashed open graves and it set the dead walking around in the dark. No, a man like me would run a mile to get away if he felt that love around, end quote. The love that is our mission, the love that is our what, the love that will hopefully become our North Star in deeper and deeper ways as a community requires that we normalize this fact as we enter into it, it will feel strange. That it will feel at times unfamiliar. There will be a familiarity and a strangeness, a continuity and a discontinuity with how we see and understand life. And we certainly see this in the life of Jesus. I want you to think about the way the Gospels tell Jesus' story on this point. In describing God's love, Jesus often does start with connection, with continuity. He offers a familiar experience. He would say things like, how many of you parents desire to give good gifts to your children? And all of us who have that parental experience, that was on cue, I like that. All of us who have that parental experience, we know that longing to do good for our children and by our children. And so we connect and we resonate. And then Jesus takes that and then transcends and says, how much more does God want to give good gifts to God's children. But Jesus, more often than not, introduces this idea of love through disruption, not through continuity. You've heard it said, he'd say, but I say to you, right? You've heard it said, do this, do that, but I tell you this. The love of Jesus in motion is often a very disruptive force. Whether it's talking with the Samaritan woman in open daylight, or it's defending a woman caught in adultery, or it's sharing a meal with known traitors who struggle with greed and corruption, or it's turning over tables in the Jewish temple, or it's touching a leper before they were cleansed, or transgressively being active on the Sabbath day of rest. Our gospel stories are showing us this disruptive force that is the love of Christ. It heals, yes, but it also hardens at times. It includes, yes, but it also speaks the truth in ways that are difficult and feel like they're pushing us away. It protects and it comes at. I remember Jesus coming at the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. 
it can often feel unbearable at times. T.S. Eliot has um, written a lot about this theme of unbearable love and how the more we come into contact with this love that we see in Jesus, the more we can become overwhelmed by it. In his sort of bleakly redemptive vision, we find the logic of the gospel. Our gospel is one of death and resurrection. It's, in the words of Eliot, unbearable violence and unbearable compassion. To enter the journey of Christ's love, we have to be willing to unlearn our old understandings and to pick up new ones. The possibility for love, he says, emerges only when we refuse these like consoling fantasies. They could be religious fantasies. They could be consumer fantasies. We all walk around with these fantasies we project onto the world to make us feel better about our world. It's an impulse to protect ourselves from a very hard truth. The truth that our world is a beguiling illusion. And we refuse to see it as it is. But love emerges here to dispossess us of our fantasies. To help us look straight into the abyss of the world's pain and our own pain. And see them as an empty destination. To see them as illusions and have those illusions burned away. By looking straight into it and facing it with courage. And it's only then, once we've allowed our illusions to be seen and to sort of let go of them or to have them burned away, on the other side of our self-centered fantasies, that we can make room for the work of love and make room for the work of communion with one another in the name of that love. I went to, I traveled to Israel um, multiple times, but one of the, the times that stands out on this point of the unbearableness of love was when I traveled to a city called Hebron, and it's in the Palestinian territories. And I was given a tour of uh, the, the downtown area of Hebron, which was functionally like a ghost town. Um, we kept seeing pictures of what it was like in the boisterous era when everyone was going to market and shopping and going to school and the streets were filled with life and, and people. And then I would look around the same scene and it was like a complete ghost town. And as we were walking around, we saw uh, a child with an AK-47 uh, around his chest uh, and he kind of followed us like this, quizzically, skeptically. Later, his father came, joined him, and sort of followed us around. And so it was this unnerving sense of being watched and followed by someone with a gun as we were watching this town, which used to be teeming with life, almost gutted of life. And we were taken to the place where the people who used to occupy this downtown center now lived. These little shacks, makeshift shacks with tin roofs and... Uh, and they, it sort of surrounded the city. And we're sitting in one of these shacks, and they are offering their best. Chicken, rice, this wonderful meal. And we're being told their story, how their lives were turned upside down, how the life that was normal, the life that they loved, raising their children, going to market, doing work, was completely ripped out from under them, and now they were forced to live outside of the town. Hundreds of thousands of people while under a thousand people occupied the center. And as I heard these stories, a little child kept walking in and out of the room 
offering us cups of water, offering us tea, offering to take our plates from us. And then we could hear their playing in the room next to us. And what I, can, what I experienced in that moment was what I could only call a bubbling rage. Just a rage to hear a story of someone who loved, who lived, who flourished, and then all of that was taken away and turned upside down, and to see the vulnerability of a child affected by that made me so angry. And my loving instinct was to choose a side in that moment. These are the good guys. Those are the bad guys. And I want to use my strength and I want to use my voice to defend and to protect the good guys. The next day, I was taking a trip uh, to a museum and told story after story after story of another vulnerable people, of people who were put to death in atrocious ways. And this was a story I knew, but somehow the, the multimedia presentations and the artifacts from the, the time of the Holocaust brought that story to a level of emotional resonance I had never experienced before. And you know what I experienced in that moment? A bubbling rage. A rage that came up from the pit of my stomach and I felt I have to use my strength and I have to use my, my voice to defend and to protect the people who are hurt in this way. And then I felt the conflict of it because these two people were at odds with each other. These two groups were at odds with each other, both of whom I had experienced an unbearable empathy. And it left me confused. My instincts about love were turned upside down. I didn't know what to do in that equation. Thankfully, I had guides, guides who invited us to consider the complexity of life and to consider the complexity of conflict, to say, our loving instincts often want more clarity than we actually have, than is actually real. And in the name of love, we latch on to these clear narratives of good and bad, of good and evil, of how we're going to use our strength to win. And what if the love of Christ teaches us to hold space for the suffering and experiences that seem unbearable, but also to hold out compassion, which can feel unbearable in those moments? I came home and I started to try to practice this. I, uh, unfortunately, it was during the year 2016. And, uh, and there was so much polarity, even in our uh, little church community. And I remember um, just listening to people's stories, listening to their perspectives, uh, trying to hold space for it, and asking open and honest questions. And I would do that for people with different opinions, even within our own community. And I remember the sense of like people wanting me to take sides, you know, wanting to take their side. And it was hard. Even if I agreed with them, I was always reluctant to like jump on the train of their side because I had a sense that the love of Christ isn't about just taking a side, doubling down with our strength and our money on that side and driving it home to victory. I had a sense that the love of Christ was calling us to tear down the walls of hostility that separate us and the walls of misunderstanding that divide us and to help us move toward each other, even when it's hard. And I remember one morning in my living room, I had, we had David and Kate over. Uh, Kindy and I were there, and we're just processing what was happening in the life of our community. And I remember saying at one point, I'm exhausted by this process. Like, I have one hand out 
to my friends in our community over here, and I have one handout over here, and I feel like I'm being stretched beyond my ability to hold it together. I feel like I'm being crucified. And then in total David Gunger mode, he bursts out yelling, that's the only way I know it's Christian. And that felt good. Our gospel invites us to a way of love that is not romantic. It is hard. And it requires so much resource. And that's why I love our story. Because our story basically is telling us that you don't have what it takes to love. That, that love is something that's beyond us. And it doesn't land with us, but it goes through us beyond us. Like it starts from somewhere else and it goes somewhere else. Jesus, in the waters of baptism, steps into the water and hears the voice of the creator saying, you are beloved. I find great pleasure in you. And for Jesus, this is the anchor. It's the root of his entire life, of his entire ministry. And for us as a church, that love of our creator has to be the root. It has to be the anchor of our life if we're going to live a life of love because we don't have what it takes on our own. Jesus experienced this love from beyond him that he let into him and then it went through him out to other people. And the pattern of Jesus' life was to constantly reconnect with the love of the creator over and over and over again. Right after this baptism story is a temptation story. He goes out into the desert and he's confronted with these sort of fantasies, right? These illusions, these tempting voices. Find control here. Find comfort there. Find solace here. Find your ego's fulfillment there. And at every turn, Jesus is able to resist it, to rebel against it and say, no, nah, that's not my game. That's not my story. That's not my play. Because he had ringing in his ears this voice of the creator's love this experience of the creator's love. And as a church, the reason that we meet every week is because we know we need to be, and you know, you may like or not like the word intentional, but we all have to like live with a sense of intent. And we come to this place intent on rooting our lives in the love of that, that loving voice of the creator, the love that we see in Jesus Christ. And what does the love of Christ do? Um, there's new social patterns that sort of emerge. When you experience the love of God, all of a sudden barriers and walls and limits begin to disappear or get torn down. In Jesus, we see forgiveness in the face of hurt and pain and aggression. In Jesus, we see peacemaking in the, 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 the human instinct to polarize. In Jesus, we see patience in a world that's just anxious to like get the problem out of the way and move on to the next thing. In Jesus, we see truth-telling when it's so hard to see, even see the truth about ourselves. Jesus rejects the either-or of taking one side over another, and he's always telling stories that hold us in tension together. And Jesus' followers, after his death and resurrection, would say things like, listen, that wall of hostility is torn down. And that what we are now is a new humanity. And when it comes to love and limits, I just want to say a quick word. The limits of the church. You might be asking, well, what are the limits of love? And what's the limit of the church? An Orthodox theologian, Sergius Bulgakov, said this. 
So that's worth the price of admission right there. And it was free, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. The limits of the church, he says, coincide with the limits of the power of the incarnation and Pentecost. But these limits don't exist at all. The universe is the periphery, the cosmic face of the church. The universe is the periphery. And because Christ is channeling the love of the creator who loves all, the love of Christ and the community of Christ is called to love all without limit. And whatever boundary seems natural that we would draw, the love of Christ compels us to tear it down and to look at it from a different angle. How can we see more of us and less of us versus them? That is the love that we're being invited into to express and to connect with. Now, our church, churches go one of two directions, I find. They either go to like spiritual bypassing, which is like we'll use love to get a, a sort of fix for the anxieties of life. And it, we come to church and it makes us feel better. We feel right and we feel good. And then we leave on our mission to like kick ass and win. Pardon my French. The other side is almost collapses the faith into activism. Where it's like, we're not sure what to do with all the spiritual stuff or the supernatural stuff. So we're just going to like use the story as a vague symbol that inspires social good. Whether it's justice or, uh, or our sense of goodness in the world. And what I hope our church is, is a church that isn't here for some false consolation. We need this to be a space where we can like ask each other hard questions and ourselves hard questions and the lens of our story and through our symbols and all the rest and say, what, what does love look like right now? What would it require of me that maybe cuts against the grain of my instinct? But at the same time, it's fueled by a sense of God really with us, the love of God truly with us to inspire us, to heal us, to fill us, to move us out into the world to participate in that healing work that Jesus showed. Jesus is the center, and the good of our neighbors is the sort of object of our love. And our neighbors are local, and they are global. Our neighbors are familiar, and they are strange. Our neighbors, in short, are every one of us. And we are called as a church, our what, is to take the love of Christ, to embody it for the good of our neighbors. In the words of T.S. Eliot, as I close, we look to the story of Jesus and hear his words. We see a moment in time, but time was made through that moment. For without the meaning, there is no time. And the moment of time gave the meaning. Amen.